During his mortal ministry, Jesus Christ often challenged people's long-held traditions and beliefs. This didn't stop after he ascended into heaven as he continued to guide his church by revelation. For example, during Jesus' life, his disciples preached the gospel only to fellow Jews. But soon after the Savior died and Peter became the leader of the church on earth, Jesus Christ revealed to Peter that the time was right for the gospel to be preached to non-Jews. The idea of sharing the gospel with Gentiles doesn't seem surprising today, so what's the lesson in this account for us? Perhaps one lesson is that in both the ancient and modern church, a loving Savior guides His chosen leaders. Continuing revelation is a vital sign of the true and living church of Jesus Christ. Like Peter, we must be willing to accept continuing revelation and live by every word of God, including all that He has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and the many great and important things He will yet reveal pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is Hope in Christ, a Come Follow Me podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Peterson, a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Acts chapters 10 through 15, the Word of God grew and multiplied. Hi, welcome to this week's scripture highlight from the New Testament. This week we are in Acts chapters 10 through 15, and in these chapters, just like the chapters before this, we are seeing the history of the church play out. This is the history of the ancient church of Christ. And in some ways, it's very comparable to the history of the church in this dispensation, in the early and mid-1800s or 19th century. In these chapters of Acts, we're going to see the early church of Jesus Christ go through a major policy change. It's a change that, as always, will be led by revelation from the Lord to His prophet. But first, let's talk about some context and set this up for you to understand as much as you can about these chapters. In these chapters, we're going to encounter various groups of people from the New Testament. Of course, you know that the Jews, or the members of the House of Israel, are those who have been descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're God's covenant people. Gentiles are anyone who's not of the House of Israel. And at this time in the New Testament, it's really anyone who's not considered Jewish. Now, another group of people were called proselytes. These are individuals who were Gentiles, but have converted to Judaism, and they follow the law of Moses. And there's another group of Gentiles we'll encounter in the New Testament who admire Judaism, but they haven't fully embraced it. These are known as God-fearers. The man from Ethiopia, for example, that we talked about in a previous scripture highlight was among the God-fearers, and we'll be introduced to another God-fearer in our chapters today. Now, Jesus Christ rose up through the Jews or the house of Israel, and so did his followers. Remember, during his ministry, for some reason known only to the Lord, he had commanded his disciples to take the gospel only to the members of the house of Israel at that time, though there were a few instances when the Savior himself did teach someone who was a Gentile. His actions in doing so alluded to the truth that eventually all people would have an opportunity to embrace the gospel, but for that time, his disciples were only to take the gospel to a specific people who were among the house of Israel. So because Jesus and his followers are Israelites, they were known at the time in the New Testament that we're studying as Jews. 
But in Acts 10 through 15, we're going to see a cultural shift among the Jews. And we're also going to read about a revelation given to the president of the church, to Peter, that would lead to a policy change that will transform the future of church membership and perhaps even try the faith of some church leaders and some members of the church. This is something that we can relate to being members of Christ's restored church in the latter days, in a rapidly changing world, and in a church that's led by living revelation from the Lord. We see policy changes somewhat more frequently today, and this lesson might be even more relevant to individuals who were around and saw a similar change in church policy in 1978 when a revelation was given to the president of the church along with all members of the first presidency and quorum of the twelve apostles when some priesthood and temple blessings that for reasons known only to the Lord had previously been limited for black church members were then made available to all worthy members without limitation. That change in 1978 also tried the faith of some church leaders and members. Now, in Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius, who lives in Caesarea, the Roman capital of Judea. This is the same place where Pilate had lived. Cornelius is a member of the Italian band. This didn't mean that Cornelius played the trumpet or that he liked pasta. It meant that Cornelius was a Roman, but he was a God-fearer. He admired the Jewish religion and had prayed to Yahweh or Jehovah the same God that the Jews prayed to. In verse 30, we learn that at this time Cornelius was fasting, and because of his faith and devotion to God, this man received a vision of an angel who told him to send for Peter, who was staying about 34 miles south of Caesarea in a place called Joppa. It was about an 11-hour walking trip. Following the words of the vision, Cornelius sent three men out to find Peter. The next day, Peter, who was staying in Joppa, knelt down in prayer and received a revelation himself that would change the course of that living church. Here is some context for the revelation. For over a thousand years, individuals who were part of the house of Israel felt that anyone who was not of the house of Israel was unclean. Regardless of their lifestyle, Israelites saw anyone who was not a Jew as being inherently unclean or unworthy. We saw in the Old Testament some of the conflict that this caused as some of the Israelites began to marry non-Israelites, and we saw how that led the Jews to reject the posterity of those mixed-blood marriages, among whom were the Samaritans. As you might know, because of the law of Moses, Jews also saw certain foods as unclean and not suitable to eat. That brings us now to Peter's vision from the Lord. In verse 11, he said, He saw the heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Now, this sheet is called a talit. It's something we would call today a Jewish prayer shawl. Now we continue in verse 12, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. And Peter saw this vision three times. The concept must have been difficult for Peter to grasp, 
After all, he and his family had lived the kosher laws of Moses for 1,500 years. At first, Peter didn't know what to make of the revelation. Then the Lord told Peter that three men were looking for him, and that he should go with them, because they were sent to him by the Lord. And at just that moment, the three men Cornelius had sent showed up at the door where Peter was staying. As you study this story, you'll see the amazing realization Peter had as he goes against what was culturally acceptable for Jews at the time. He entered Cornelius' home in a city where there had been a temple erected to Zeus. But as Peter is willing to follow the Lord's instructions to visit Cornelius in this city, Peter's eyes became opened. He saw the faith of this non-Jew, this Gentile man, and he heard of Cornelius' devotion to keeping the Lord's commandments and worshiping him with full purpose of heart. And when Peter saw this, he opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And Peter taught to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he saw the fruits of the Holy Ghost within them as they received it with gladness. Of course, God has commandments. He wants us to learn to walk in his way so we can eventually live the quality of life that he lives eternally. But the truth had always been that God does not care less about one group of his children than he does about another. He is no respecter of persons. It's true he may be able to favor or bless one group more than another because of their obedience or other reasons that he in his perfect vision sees fit, but he cares about all of his children. And the time had finally come at last for the apostles and others to take the gospel to the people of the Gentile nations, including the Romans. I particularly love in Acts chapter 11 when Peter is sharing and testifying about this revelation and his experience to the other apostles and church members. When they hear it, they rejoice that God would grant the gift of repentance to the Gentiles. And Luke refers to it in Acts chapter 11 verse 18 as the gift of repentance unto life. What a great way to look at repentance. It's a gift from Heavenly Father, a gift that brings life. Life in the Spirit, life with unconquerable spiritual confidence, life with lasting joy, and eventually eternal life. Now, there are several lessons that we could take from this chapter, but what do you learn? Like the Jews who looked down on people who were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do you ever catch yourself making unkind or uninformed assumptions about someone who is different from you? One invitation from the church's Come Follow Me resource this week is to take the next few days and whenever you interact with someone or see someone, try to think to yourself, this person is a child of God. If you accept the invitation to do that, pay attention to what it does to your interactions with them. Remember, commandments are important in order to obtain eternal happiness and lasting joy. But when it comes to how we see and treat other people in our personal interactions, it doesn't matter if someone chooses not to keep all of God's commandments or disagrees with you on a key issue, they still deserve our love and respect as children of God. Another great lesson that we might learn as we study this chapter is about revelation. 
both personal revelation and revelation to the Lord's prophet that guides the current emphases and policies of his church in an ever-changing world. If you are wishing that you could receive more clear direction from the Lord on a particular issue or problem you're facing, and you find yourself wishing you could be better at receiving personal revelation, study closely what Cornelius and Peter did that led them to receive personal revelation. What do you think you could do to improve your ability to hear the Lord's voice speak to you? There are certainly some faithful actions that can often invite revelation more than others. Which ones are missing from your daily routine? Or maybe you already pray and read the scriptures every day and worship in the temple regularly. Is there a way you could change the way you do these things so that your spiritual eyes and ears are more open to hear the whispers of the Spirit speak to your heart and mind? Is there some small thing you could adjust about your prayers and about your scripture study or temple service that would give the Lord a better chance to be heard by you? And then like Peter's revelation, sometimes the personal revelation we receive may not make sense to us immediately. Sometimes the revelation is just in an impression that we're to remember until the time is right and the Lord can reveal more. Other times, the personal revelation we receive gives us just enough direction to know what we need to do, but not necessarily why we need to do it. Be patient. Move forward with faith. If we want the Lord to reveal more to us, it requires our acting in faith and obedience to what He's already given to us before the gift of greater revelation is given. Think of the revelations given to President Russell M. Nelson to encourage us to spend the third hour of Sunday worship studying and teaching the gospel together in our homes rather than using that third hour in our meeting houses each week. As we began to implement that revelation, none of us could have known that a worldwide pandemic would come only months later. And none of us could have foreseen the other changes in our world and the significant impact that home-centered gospel study would have on preparing the saints for the second coming of our Lord. Yet the Lord has always known. Receiving revelation is about putting ourselves in a situation and in circumstances, trying to keep ourselves clean enough that we can hear His voice. And then it's about getting just enough understanding that we can confidently walk into the unknown get a little outside our comfort zone, stretch ourselves, and wait for more revelation to come. Sometimes revelation comes to us to let us know what we need to do to prepare, without telling us exactly what we're preparing for. Isn't it great to have open access to communication with the one who knows every reason for everything we're experiencing, and the one who knows everything that lies ahead along our journey? one who knows us better than we even know ourselves? Another way to get better at receiving personal revelation is to study the words of one of the most skilled individuals at receiving revelation. Study the teachings and practices of President Russell M. Nelson. Pay attention to his words. Even when he's not talking and teaching about revelation, we can learn a great deal about how to receive revelation simply by paying very close attention to what he says. There are a few recent talks he has given on the topic that would be great study companions for this principle, including the steps that if followed will allow us to grow into the principle of revelation, as Joseph Smith and President Nelson have said. 
two of these talks that President Nelson has given about Revelation are titled Revelation for the Church, Revelation for Our Lives from April 2018, and The Blessing of Continuing Revelation from April 2020. Now in Acts chapter 11, toward the end of this chapter, we learn that missionary work began to expand to the Gentiles. A man named Barnabas, who we were introduced to in chapter 4, heads toward Tarsus to find Paul, a new missionary companion. And the two then took off for the city of Antioch, an ancient city found in modern-day Turkey, where they taught the gospel for about a year. It was there that we learned followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. The label Christian is not one given to disciples by the Lord. Rather, it was likely a nickname given to Christ's followers by their pagan neighbors in the Roman Empire, likely meant to distinguish these followers of Jesus from other Jewish groups of the day. Now that label Christian still exists today. And even though members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are by very definition Christian in that they follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and worship Him as the Son of God and the Savior and Redeemer of the world, we do not typically use that label as frequently as we use other labels in the Church. Have you ever wondered why? Almost five years ago, President Russell M. Nelson received clear revelation from the Lord that we are to honor the true name of his church. In association with that prophetic directive from the Lord was also the charge to call members of the Savior's church the way he would have them known. This meant that nicknames such as Mormon or LDS were to be retired. What would the Lord have his people be called then? Certainly, we are members of his church— which is a completely accurate way to call his covenant people today. But if you'd like an interesting study, a really fascinating study, and it might take you a while to complete it, it certainly took me a while, look through the scriptures, all of them, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, and study them all, looking for all the ways that the Lord himself refers to his people. Don't you think we ought to follow the example of the Lord? So what does he call his disciples? What identifier has he always most frequently chosen throughout the ages to refer to his children of the covenant? Go spend some time studying it out. There is a lot we can learn from a study like that about ourselves and about what the Lord sees in us. I'll give you a hint at the answer. When you find it, It won't surprise you at all when you closely consider the way the prophet has directed the church to refer to church members in the church's materials and messaging today. In Acts chapter 12, we read about a Roman-appointed leader named Herod Agrippa. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was the man who tried to have Jesus killed not long after his birth. And now Herod Agrippa, putting forth his own efforts to stop Jesus' church from growing, had a member of what would have been the first presidency of the church, James, killed. After taking James' life, Herod then went after Peter, the chief apostle. Chapter 12 of Acts tells the story of Peter being taken to prison and then miraculously being freed by an angel of the Lord. Just a thing or two about this story. 
Imagine the chief of the Lord's apostles being unjustly imprisoned for his determination to follow Jesus Christ. What kind of response would that elicit from church members today if one of the Lord's apostles were to be troubled? We saw the answer to that question play out over the last few months as it was reported to members of the church that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland would not be able to attend general conference or see to many of his apostolic duties at church headquarters and throughout the world because of some health challenges. What did the membership of Christ's church do when they heard this news? When we found out that our dear apostle leader was seeing hard times, church members did the same thing that the early disciples did when Peter was taken to prison. In Acts chapter 12, it says, But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And what happened to Peter? The Lord sent an angel to free him from prison and to answer the prayers of his saints. And what happened to Elder Holland? In his own words, in a video that the Church News produced just a few weeks ago, Elder Holland said, I've believed all my life about prayer. In many, many cases, a lot of the people in the church, maybe most, pray for the brethren. And I just want to somehow take that up a notch in people's hearts where they understand that that really, really matters. All the things that could be wrong with somebody who shouldn't get COVID— That's who I was, and I should have probably been taken, but I wasn't. And I think with all my heart that it was the prayer of little kids in Kansas and of sweet colleagues that I met in Zimbabwe, someone praying in a Japanese language that I don't even understand, but that they do and that God does. I believe that I'm the beneficiary of that. And so here I am. I am staggering toward the finish line. I refuse to get off the track. I'm still in the race, and I'm grateful to saints for those prayers. Close quote. It is good that we teach our children to pray for the Lord's anointed servants and for his missionaries throughout the world. They need our prayers, and the power of those prayers is felt and blessings are received because of them every single day. Now, after the death of the Apostle James, It seems that from this time forth, another James becomes a principal leader in the church in Jerusalem. This James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, a son of Mary and Joseph. He's the author of the New Testament book called James, and it's about at this time in the history of the church, around the time of the events of Acts chapter 13, that the book of James was written. And we'll study that book later on this year. That is the book, of course, that coupled with an impression from the Holy Ghost led young Joseph Smith to a grove of trees to ask the question of the century, or perhaps the question of the millennium. If you study the history of God's covenant people, whether ancient or modern, it doesn't take long to realize it's a history riddled with persecution. Why does God allow difficult things to happen to righteous people? Obviously, God doesn't tell people to persecute his saints. He isn't the reason for the persecution, but he certainly allows it to happen from time to time. So why? I have always found great value in these words from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. In his book, All These Things Shall Give the Experience, he wrote, To be untested and unproven is also to be unaware of all that we are.
if we are unknowing of our possibilities, with what could we safely be entrusted? Could we, in ignorance of our capacities, trust ourselves? Could others then be entrusted to us? Thus, the relentless love of our Father in heaven is such that in His omniscience, He will not allow the cutting short some of the brief experiences we're having here. To do so would be to deprive us of everlasting experiences and great joy there. What else would an omniscient and loving Father do even if we plead otherwise? He must at times say no. Furthermore, since there was no exemption from suffering for Christ, how can there be one for us? Do we really want immunity from adversity, especially when certain kinds of suffering can aid our growth in this life? To deprive ourselves of those experiences, much as we might momentarily like to, would be to deprive ourselves of the outcomes over which we shouted with anticipated joy when this life's experiences were explained to us so long ago in the world before we came here. End of quote. As Paul's first missionary journey begins in Acts 13 and 14, we get to learn and see that the church continued to grow exponentially. The gospel of Jesus Christ that started out in obscure Israelite fishing towns on the Galilean coastline was now spreading to areas throughout the Roman Empire and was being embraced even by some in the Gentile nations. But it wasn't without persecution. In Acts 14, we read that the saints in those days became heavily persecuted. Despite the persecution of the early saints, they withstood the blows from the other Jews and Gentiles who didn't agree with them and chose to be intolerant and even cruel. For example, Paul and Barnabas, two stalwart missionaries, were criticized, publicly ridiculed, and Paul was even stoned so badly that they carried his body out of the city convinced that he was dead. Yet they got back up. Paul and Barnabas and others, they continued to teach and ordain elders in the church in many cities. They prayed with the saints. They fasted with them. And then in Acts 14.23, it says they commended the members of the church to the Lord. Another way to state this is to recommend them to the Lord. We still do these things today in the Lord's Restored Church. We fast together. We pray together. We ordain elders to oversee the work of ministering and ordinances. And sometimes we do all of it at the same time we're being persecuted. And as it's mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 29, where the disciples sent relief to the members who lived in other cities, today we have the world's largest women's organization, called the Relief Society, filled with faithful sisters who do that very thing. They seek to bring relief that is found in Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone in need, both physically and spiritually. And just like the ancient saints did, do our leaders still commend us to the Lord? Absolutely. Every two years, and every year for the youth of the church, we get the privilege to sit face to face and knee to knee with representatives of the Lord. In those settings we generally refer to as temple recommend interviews, we have the opportunity to declare before a representative of Jesus Christ our faith in Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. We get to declare our testimony of them, our willingness to stand by their anointed servants in Christ's restored church, and we have the privilege of witnessing of our willingness and commitment to keep the Lord's commandments, 
to walk in His ways, and to strengthen the bond of our covenant relationship with Him by keeping the covenants we've made in His holy house, and by faithfully wearing the temple garment that reminds us of Him, and of our covenantal obligations to Him, and then of His covenantal obligation and blessings for us. We testify of our own repentance as we offer up broken or humble hearts and contrite or repentant spirits. After declaring these things to one of the Lord's chosen representatives, there in that interview, they then fulfill that joyful part of their role as they recommend us to the Lord. With their name recorded on our temple recommend, they present you and I at the doors of the Lord's house as one who has been recommended to the Lord, as one of His disciples who has been found suitable, accepted, and approved to enter into the sacred house of the Lord. Chapter 15 begins as Paul's first missionary journey starts to come to a close, a mission that resulted in about 2,000 traveled miles. You can see those journeys in Bible Maps 18 and 19 in the Latter-day Saint edition of the Bible. Now that the number of Gentile converts began to outnumber the believing Jews, the alarm bells began to sound in the ears of some of the longtime Jewish disciples. Some of the saints who had been Jews and were deep into a heritage of the Law of Moses began to teach that any Gentile who converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ would need to obey the Mosaic law of circumcision. Obviously, many disagreed, and this topic became hotly debated in some circles. Eventually, it was recommended that Paul and Barnabas and several others should go to Jerusalem and ask the apostles and other elders about the question. This resulted in a general council of the church. It's known in history as the Jerusalem Council. At the beginning of this scripture highlight episode, we learned about a few different groups of individuals that existed at the time of Paul. Here is where we meet another group. This group is known as the Judaizers. These are Jewish saints who still insisted that converts should enter the church through strict obedience to the law of Moses. Not only including circumcision, but also hundreds of other rules that were associated with the law of Moses at the time. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, we are introduced to that group of Judaizers. Here at this Jerusalem council, Peter stood up and presented the doctrine, reminding the saints of the revelations the Lord gave that led the church to this point. Peter emphasized to the members of this council the importance of following what the Lord counsels and not following the counsel of men who do not have authority to direct his church. Peter clarified that the Lord's revelation did not require saints to bear the yoke of the law of Moses, and testified that it was not the law of Moses that would bring them salvation, but rather, Jesus Christ would be the source of grace they needed to be saved. Then, Paul and Barnabas reported to the council on their missionary efforts and the miracles the Lord granted to the Gentile converts. And then it seems in a later meeting, after the conclusion of the Jerusalem council, Peter had perhaps given the final decision of the council to James, who was seen as the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. James is then responsible now to deliver the message from the chief apostle, or the president of the church, to members in what could be called James's own ward or stake there in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, stood as a second witness to the testimony Peter shared in the Jerusalem council. 
And then James delivered the recommendation not to bother the Gentile converts with the yoke of the old law of Moses, but instead every saint should avoid the worship of idols and all the popular things at the time that accompanied idol worship, including sexual immorality. In verses 23 through 29, it is essentially what we might call an official declaration today. This was a letter from the leaders of the church at Jerusalem announcing the council to the entire church. The one thing that the letter did not do was to sever Jewish saints from continuing to keep elements of the law of Moses. And if you've studied church history in our dispensation, that pattern of sensitivity to previous cultural norms shouldn't surprise you. For example, just like the ancient church slowly weaned the saints off of practices that came from the law of Moses, so in the 19th and 20th centuries, we see the same thing taking place with the word of wisdom. Originally, the revelation of the word of wisdom came to the prophet Joseph Smith in 1833. But at that time, it was simply a word of wisdom. It was counsel to the church members. Then in 1851, Brigham Young proposed that all the saints formally covenant to avoid tea, coffee, tobacco, and whiskey. Then in 1882, the Lord revealed to John Taylor that the word of wisdom was to be a commandment. And it wasn't until the year 1919 when Heber J. Grant, as president of the church, was led to make living the word of wisdom a requirement in order to be recommended worthy to enter the house of the Lord. Speaking of the time when the word of wisdom was first revealed in 1833, President Joseph F. Smith said, If the word of wisdom had been given as a commandment, it would have brought every man addicted to the use of these noxious things under condemnation. So the Lord was merciful and gave them a chance to overcome before he brought them under the law. So the same type of thing seems to be happening here in the book of Acts with the ancient saints and their living the law of Moses, something they and their families had lived for 1,500 years. Old habits can take time to change. Ask anyone who still has a hard time remembering that they're a Latter-day Saint and not Mormon or LDS. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch and delivered the news to the saints there about not having to live the law of Moses if they converted to the church, the people were so happy to have received direction from the Lord's anointed servants. I really loved reading that the people rejoiced when they heard the prophet's counsel. Do we do that today? When the prophet announces a church policy or practice that doesn't seem to make sense to us or that we don't immediately agree with, do we rejoice in direction from God through his living prophet? Or do we join in in hurling at the prophet what Elder Neil L. Anderson called the fireballs of annoyed disbelievers? Do we send, as Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has put it, musket fire shooting from our mouths toward church headquarters? Do we immediately begin to search for the bluntly weak and pathetic arguments that are made on web pages and in doubt-filled conversations against the church to justify why we shouldn't have to follow a prophet of God and why it's okay to choose not to participate in God's church because it's just not true anyway? Do we seek to justify ourselves and, like Korahor of the Book of Mormon, lie to ourselves, thinking that it will numb the pain of having to sacrifice our pride and our natural man within us? Do we walk those dark paths, binging on every pleasure and apparent freedom the world has to offer, trying to convince ourselves and announcing to everyone around us that we've never been happier? 
that the church and following prophets and commandments was always so restricting, but this godless new life of you do you is somehow exalting? That course, my friends, will lead us to the same place it has led every person who ever pursued it. And if you're wondering where that is, go study the story of Korahor in Alma chapter 30 that concludes with these reflective words from the prophet Mormon. And thus we see the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord. And thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. Let us not choose that path. Instead, let us choose, like those ancient saints at Antioch, to rejoice in what it is to be guided by a prophet who God has positioned with sight that sees above the smoke and clouds and darkness of the world. Let us find joy in standing with the prophet of Almighty God and working with him in an ever-changing and increasingly contentious world to prepare every soul we can, including the very members of the church who live in our own homes and neighborhoods, for the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in continuing revelation to a prophet of God and in the truth that we can receive our own personal confirmation of the truth anything the prophet might ask of us or of the church, whether it's easy or hard for us to accept. We can know the truth of it if we will seek to hear the Lord's voice and live so that He can get through to our hearts and to our minds. The Lord is aware of us. He waits to hear from us, and He longs to speak to us every day. This is a message of hope in Christ. Thank you.